future terror and joy of ministry. My thoughts come somewhat from Brother Merle Burkholder, but also come a lot from personal experience. <laughs> I have a brother in our church, Brother Joel. Uh, I call him a Minnesota redneck. He became a Christian when he was 25. And that's a whole other story in itself. I don't know if I relate that at all this weekend. But he was, uh, he was quite a fun-loving guy when he was, when he was young. And uh, he tells a story of water skiing, and he just loved to get on one ski, and he would come in right next to the dock, and he'd cut corners. And one day there was a guy on the dock, and he came in and just perfectly sprayed him and put out a cigarette. He was so proud of that. He thought that was really cool. The first time he went skiing, two of his friends from high school took him skiing, Scott and Roger, I believe it was, and they took him to the top of the hill. He'd never been skiing before, and they get to the top of the ski hill, and they calmly discussed, since Joel had never gone skiing before, which hill should they take him down? And they decided that since he was a new beginner, they should take him down the double black diamond, because that's the easiest one. <laughs> and he made it. And he survived, and he loves to ski. And, but I have not known him to ski because he believes that you should do all things in moderation. And the last time he skied, he ripped his knee apart, and so he, he quit skiing. We as, as humans are, are made for adventure. And for adventure to be an adventure, there needs to be something akin to terror involved in order to do that, in order to enjoy that. Now, I don't know if you ski or not. It's been many years since I skied, uh, mainly because I'm getting too old and I tend to hurt myself when I do it. Um, but, you know, when you go skiing, you don't stay on the bunny hill all day. How many of you, how many of you ski? Is there people here? I'm seeing some people, maybe some, eh, okay. Um, the bunny hills, the first time you go down the bunny hill, you are scared to death. And uh, you finally figure that out, and then you get to bigger hills, and then you get to bigger hills. You look for things that you can't quite do. Or not sure if you can, but you think it'd be kind of fun to try. And then you do it, and you're going down this black diamond, and you're going 90 miles an hour, and all of a sudden you realize that you can't stop and you're going to crash, and you're going to die. And if you don't die, at least you're going to get hurt really bad. And you're just scared to death, and you get to the bottom. I didn't die. I survived it. That was cool. Let's go do that again. Isn't that what we do? And then we get that one conquered and say, oh, we should go try this over here, and then we go try the next one. The world is full of things to give us adventure. That is what the world does. It, it, racing, bungee jumping. I mean, hello, bungee jumping. That's, a, that's about the dumbest thing you can do. I mean, really? I mean, uh, skiing, parachuting, mountain climbing. What are these wingsuits they got, you know, and they just glide down and fly between little holes in the rocks, and if you miss, you're dead. I mean, there's no margin for error at all, and they think it's fun. And then when you get too old to do that, I'm convinced that even older people like adventure. It just takes a different form. Maybe they like to invest, or they get into business, or something like that. But there's, there's something in, in people that we, we, we like that. 
Okay, we, we, there's a drive in us. It makes us want that. And adventure brings terror. It brings relief. And then there's some satisfaction as well. When you get, oh, I could do that. It's pretty cool, you know. Can you do that? Well, you should try. You could, you could, learn, you could learn how to do that as well. Um, and I think every young guy that's, that's here is thrilled by the prospect of doing something. Okay? Any of you guys here want to be wimps? You, no, you want to be able I, I, yeah, I can do that. And somewhere we've equated entertainment and adventure with worldliness. Like, yeah, we're not supposed to be too exciting. You know, we're, 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 yeah. And Christianity is just kind of boring. You know, we just kind of pretty stayed and we go to church and we're pretty predictable and life's just the way it is. And, and we've associated fighting for a kingdom as worldly and standing meekly by as godly. And we've associated the old and cautious as wise and the young and daring as foolish. And we need to be cautious and wise. Don't get me wrong, okay? That, that's, that's good. But following Jesus isn't exactly the safest thing you can do in the world. In our country, it isn't so bad, but there's a lot of places you go, when you become a Christian, you sign your death sentence. It's not the safest thing that you can do. You know, there were people in the Bible that were dropped over walls and people that witnessed the jailers at midnight after they were almost killed. You know, the jailer has his sword ready to chop their heads off, and, oh, hang on, we didn't escape. He's like, well, what must I do to be saved? And they got to tell him. Now, tell you what, that's adventure. <laughs> the adrenaline was pumping, and... And they, and they got to tell him about the Lord, and they baptized the guy and his whole, his whole household. They, that was exciting. The greatest adventure that we can have in life is following Jesus Christ. That's the greatest adventure that we can have. We are in a battle. You know, we're, we don't go to war, okay? And sometimes we kind of get this, you know, they go to war and we stay home and we farm because we have a farm deferment or whatever the case may be during, during the wars. But you know what? We are in a battle for the world. And I'm becoming more and more convinced. I'm not a conspiracy theory guy that thinks there's someone sitting in a back dark room somewhere pulling all these COVID strings. Well, let's make everyone wear masks and then we could do this and do that. I'm not, I'm not there, but I tell you what. Satan is using this thing to upset the whole world and to put fear in people's hearts. And, and they're scared, but yet they... And there's lonely people. Our, our neighbors are just lonely at home. They just want people to come. And my sister was saying, she said, so how do, you, how do you reach out to people during COVID? And some people, you go say, can we come sing for you? Oh, come on in. Don't wear a mask. Just come sing for me. I, got, I need people around. And the next person, you know, I had one customer. I went to give her a receipt, and she, like, had her mask on. I had my mask on, and I had to poke the slip through the screen door because she was scared she was going to get COVID. It's just tearing our world apart. We, we are in a battle. And so I said, I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist that there's someone behind doing this, but Satan's doing it. And we are against Satan. And, and furthermore, not only are we just against Satan, but like we're on the winning team. Like we know we're going to win, okay? Like there's, there's none of this deal of being part of a professional sports team, which a lot of people put their adrenaline and excitement into that. Okay, that's not the place to put it. But they, they get rah, 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 and they're behind this team, and then they lose, and they're all, de they're all depressed. I say in Minnesota, 
you shouldn't like have your your uh, adrenaline or your self worth based on your on your professional teams because in Minnesota we'd be depressed all the time. You know, people keep keep breaking their legs jumping off the Vikings bandwagon. You know, because it's just a disaster in Minnesota. But that people think, oh, I'm for the Minnesota Vikings, and then they lose. Well, you know what? I'm for Jesus Christ, and I'm going to win. And well, what? Yeah, we're going to win. We would rather we would rather wrestle alligators where we might die than to be involved in ministry where we know we'll win. How many of you know what the number one fear of man is? Wrong. Public speaking. You know what his second fear is? Dying. In other words, he's more scared of speaking than he is of dying. You know what? We have a message to give. Like we, we don't, you know, we'll, we'll do this over here and we'll go mountain climbing or we'll go do this thing here that, that if it doesn't work, we're going to die. But we don't want to get up in front and talk to anybody. Someone here this weekend said, they just do not talk in front of people. Well, you know what? Uh, there's nothing wrong with talking to people. It's, it's just fine. Sure, it's scary. But we would rather go do something that's pointless. We'd rather go skiing and take a jump and almost die than to get up in front and give our testimony. Why is that? Serving the Lord should be the greatest adventure that we have. You'd rather do anything than have to go to street meetings and give your testimony or to teach vacation Bible school. How many of you have taught vacation Bible school? Oh, I think I'm seeing more hands over here than over here. Um, you guys teach vacation Bible school. I did it when I was 18 the first year, and I still have friends today that were among those fifth graders that I taught. That's my, fav my favorite age group is fifth graders. And... Uh, I remember one little boy saying, I just don't know what to believe. My mom's a Jehovah's Witness and my dad's a Lutheran. Like, what's right? And he's 11, 12 years old. And I got to be his friend. And, you know, today I don't know what he is if he's anything. But we still got to tell him about Jesus. And it was, it was kind of hard work and keep all these little squirts and keep them straight and whatever else. But serving the Lord is the best thing that you can do. Sure, it's hard. Sure, it's scary. Um, the, the first time I got up behind the pulpit to preach a Sunday morning sermon, I was, I was a nervous wreck. Um, I, just, I, mean, I have a friend who's, he was probably mid-50s, and, and he got up one time in front of church, and, I, and he, he was just moderating. <coughs> and he got up there, and I was, from the vantage point, I could see his knees literally just shaking, Okay. It's scary, but it's serving the Lord. Take your Bible, turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6 and verse 11. So now, now just, just think a little bit as we read this story. Imagine if you was there, and imagine what this would feel like to be in the midst of this. Story of Gideon, Judges 6 and verse 11. And there came an angel of the Lord 
and sat under an oak which is in Ophrah, and pertained unto Joash the Abarizite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So he's hiding because the Midianites are out trying to take everything they got. They're the enemy. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and saith unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, Ugh! <laughs> and Gideon says, Oh my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all the miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, Really? Oh, my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is the poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee and bring forth my present and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. And Gideon went in and made ready a kid and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour. The flesh he put in a basket and put the broth in a pot and brought it out unto him under the oak and presented it. And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of his staff, which was in his hand, and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen the face for, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And we know the rest of the story. He he's still not sure if he should do this or not, and, and God says, Okay, go down to the camp tonight. So he sneaks down to the camp at night and to the edge of the Midianites, and him and his someone was with him, and they sneak up there and they hear this guy, and this guy says, I had a dream. And this loaf of bread rolled down off the hill and into our camp and just, you know, smashed the tent. And the guy said, we're in trouble now because that's Gideon. And Gideon's going to come in here and he's going he's gonna to destroy us. And you're Gideon sitting outside the tent. Like, really? Like, how do they even know who I am? Like, I'm, I'm a nobody. Um, and then God whittles him down from 30,000 down to 300 men. And, and that night they chase and they slay 120,000 men in that night. And then he comes back, and, and here, here's an interesting verse. Uh, verse 16 of chapter 8. So he goes, and these people don't want to help him. And so when he comes back, he took the elders of the city, and the thorns of the wilderness, and the briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Uh, he, he whipped them, okay? He, he, he trained them. He taught them, it says. Um, and then he killed the king, and apparently this was all done within 24 hours, because it says, as he was on his way home before it was light, he caught these guys and, and trained them, and then he got the king and, and killed him. Um, and imagine if someone imagine someone hearing that story, and, and you can just hear Gideon saying, you know, we, I, God told me I should do this, and I was like scared to death. And we snuck down there, and I was so scared. My heart was thumping so loud, I was sure the guys in the tent heard me, you know, and I was sure we were dead meat. And then I heard what he said, and I got excited, and we went out, and God did this. And it was like, wow, that's really, God did that for you. That's exciting. That's the way God works. We, we get a, come alongside, like, did Gideon do it? No, Gideon didn't do it. God did it. But Gideon got to be there and see it happen. 
Go to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. And the same day when evening was come, he saith unto them, his disciples, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, says, let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship, and there was also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Okay? How many of you have ever been in a boat and you were feared of capsizing or sinking? i got a few of you out there. I was out one night or one day going to work. We worked on an island, and I had my little 14-foot boat, and I was trying to go against 40-mile-an-hour winds and 3-foot waves. And about the time I tried, I was trying to get on plane, you know. And about the time i get up here, the wind would catch me, and I thought it would go like this. So I cut back, then the waters would splash in the back of the boat, you know. And i try again, the water splash in the back of the boat. I couldn't turn because of the waves. I could just keep going this way, and I thought, you know what? I wasn't scared, but I said, if I'm not careful... I'm going to be on the bottom of this lake. And uh, it took me 45 minutes to what should have taken me about 10. Um, <coughs> so the boat is full of water. And these are seasoned fishermen. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on the pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Master, care so not that we perish. And he arose and rebuked the winds and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, What are you guys worried about? What's the big deal? I mean, I mean, just the boat's full of water and the wind's blowing. I mean, but what's, what's the big deal? Don't you have any faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. That's, that's living life with adrenaline. I mean, that's, that's adventure. If you, if you want adventure, that's, that's way better than wrestling alligators or going mountain climbing or whatever. This is, they're getting something done here. And they saw people healed. Can you imagine? How many of you know someone that you wish could be healed? Imagine if you could have them healed. Um, my daughter that's here, she's 14. She has Down syndrome. If, if the Lord would heal her, she would be so different, we wouldn't have the same child. I mean, we would, like, like we would miss Kendra if she wasn't, if she wasn't Kendra. Um, we have lots of fun with Kendra. But some days, in my heart just, just aches. Because she told me the other day, she said, well, back up a little bit. My 17-year-old my and I were discussing how to save enough money for Bible school and what you need for a job. And Kendra was observing all this. And she went into the, my office after Katina and I were done, and she has a piece of paper. And she had written some things on there. And she says, I, 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 I clean, clean bath, bathrooms on pr Friday, and you... You, you pay money. <laughs> oh, okay. She had that on her list of things that she wanted. She, I should pay her money. That's how she was going to make money. And she's when, when I, I'm 17, I go teach school. Well, she's not going to go teach school. And sometimes I tell her, well, what? We'll see when, like, when it comes to getting married. Well, we'll see once what God has for you. But I was like, you know what? She's not teaching school. She just needs to know that. And I said, I don't. Think I'm thinking you're not going to teach school. Ah, rats, she said. <laughs> but then, the next week later, she said, but I want to teach school. And she's in tears. And sometimes there's, my heart just aches all the things that she can't do, okay? Imagine if I could bring her to Jesus and he could just heal her. 
Wouldn't that be wonderful? Like, wouldn't that be a, that'd be a, oh, great. Our other little daughter we have, she has some medical procedures we do every day. Um, we've, she's been part of our family now for three years. Uh, and I think she'll probably be with us all of her life as well. But imagine if God could come and fix her brain, whatever the trauma is or the fetal alcoholism or whatever the case is, if God could fix that, wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't that be great? And the disciples got to see that happen. Like they were right there. They saw Lazarus come to life again. And you and I are serving the same Lord who can do the same things. And we want to go bungee jumping. We're scared to tell people about the Lord. You know, I think the disciples looked a lot more like you than they, do, than they look like your ministers. The disciples were all young guys, I think. They weren't old seasoned guys. They were, they were young guys. They were all ripping rare and they were ready to go in life. But here, look at this man. Look at this guy. He's healing people. Man, we should follow this guy. I wonder what he's going to do next. And they start following him. They believe in him. And they follow him. Several years ago, about nine to be exact, I was asked to teach at Maranatha Bible School. And uh, I don't consider myself a teacher. I'd rather preach than teach. But they called and asked me to teach. And I, I like young people. We have a youth rally at our church every spring. I'm involved in a youth camp that we put on every summer. And I get excited about young people. And so why not go teach Bible school? That would be, that would be great. And so I'm all excited. And I get ministers meeting the first of the year, first of December. And Brother Dan Schrock says, so uh, are you excited? Oh, yeah, I'm all pumped, man. I'm, I got good classes and I'm... I'm excited about my classes. He's like, well, good. I'm, I'm glad. And uh, he said, some people don't, you know, they get scared. And they say, no, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all pumped. And I got to Bible school, and I taught the first day, and it went really good. And I sat down on my teacher's study at the end of the day, and I'm going over my notes. And about 4 o'clock, all of a sudden, the whole weight of the three weeks and the work that I didn't have, prep, I didn't have as much prepared as I thought I well, I knew I was going to be working all day from 5 in the morning to 10 at night. I just knew that, okay? I was prepared for that. But all of a sudden, it came in and it crashed in on top of me, and I had an anxiety attack. And I don't know if you know what that is. I hope you don't, but I'm finding out more and more people have them than, than I've learned about. And uh, Because, see, when you have one, you're scared to say that you had one because you think maybe you're losing your mind or you don't know what's going on. And my heart was racing, and I was sweating, and I was shaking, and I would just, I would just, and I would just pace around. I, I was just, just a nervous wreck, and I, I mean, I was, I was seriously stressed. And I went home that night. And I laid in my bed, and I laid in my bed, and the clock, clock struck ten, and it struck eleven, and it struck twelve, and it struck one. And the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. Believe me, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. And the struck, struck, clock struck two, and three, and four, and five. And it was time to get up. And my mind just... Whew. I go to Bible school that morning, and I had shared a little bit in teacher says, I The night before, I said, I'm, I'm a little stressed. I didn't say too much, because I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. I said, I'm a little stressed. And Brother Wendell Schrock comes to me the next morning and says, so how's it going? I said, it's hot. And he just laid his hands on me right there and prayed for me. And that... Now, I think I said something then. I said, I didn't sleep last night. So he, well, Brother Nolan Byler's there, and he's a doctor. And he said, well, we'll take care of that. So uh, he gave me something, and he knocked me out. And, and I slept that night. 
And for three weeks, that's the way I lived. Um, I took a little bit of a sleeping pill and it helped a little bit. But I was skiing 90 miles an hour and I was sure I was crashing. And I was sure I was dying. I didn't know if I was losing my mind or what was happening. I was scared to death. But, of course, you don't talk about that. I go home and tell my dad. And, have you ever had, you know, like a panic attack? No, he never had one of those before. No. Okay, you're a lot of help. Um, no, nobody seemed to know, you know. And, and, it, and it took me, it took me a couple years before I could actually talk about it. Because, see, if I talk about it, it would bring those feelings back. And then that was scary, and so I couldn't talk about it. Um, and I'm not the only one. I talked to other Bible school teachers, and, and I was talking to uh, Brother Berlin Yoder, and he actually went into serious depression. And uh, he was talking about this, and I said, yeah, right. And I would say something, and he's like, you get it. You understand what this is like. I said, yeah, I get it. Um, it was not fun. In fact, it was, it was uh, so bad that when I went home, that next summer you get the yearbook, you know, and you get the CD of the course. And when they put the CD on, and I heard the same songs that I ex listened to in chorus while I was experiencing all this, I had flashbacks. I mean, my heart would start racing all over again, just from hearing good songs. Like, it was just the weirdest thing. So now what am I going to do? Am I going to teach Bible school again? Well, I decided I was going to teach Bible school to face my fears. But the reason was, I didn't, there's more to life than not being scared. Okay? There's more to life than sitting in the lodge all day watching everyone else come down the hill 90 miles an hour experiencing life and I'm sitting in there because I'm scared. I said, there's more to life than sitting in, my, in the lodge watching ministry go by. I, this is what life is about. This is what serving the Lord is about. We're going to go do it. Merle Burkholder, I don't know how many of you know who he is, um, He's traveled the world a lot, and he said that ministry opportunities are often akin to terror. <laughs> uh, and he can tell story after story, I mean, of other parts of the world. And we wonder why we get involved in ministry. Like, why in the world? You know, there was, there was many years I go to Bible school. I remember one year, was, Wednesday was fast day, so I didn't eat lunch, and I got a splitting headache, because I hadn't eaten much, and I'm sitting there in the shower Wednesday night, and I said, I am never, never coming back again. I am done. I've had enough of this. I mean, this is crazy. I come down here and I hate it. And it, it just... And then, you know, by the middle of the second week, it's getting better. I get to the end of the third week. say, that was good. I'm going to do that again. And I do. And I go back the next year. It took me five years before Bible school turned out to what I thought it would be. Like, I thought Bible school should be fun and sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it took five years for that to happen. And it can still happen to me. I don't face the terror like I used to in, in that regard. I face sleepless nights. Um, told Dan asked me this morning if I had a good night, and I said, well, when you're on the road, I, you just don't sleep good. Um, but I've been in bed already thinking, so I, I told Dan, this is exactly what will happen. I gave him the subject here. I said, this is, this is what's going to happen. He calls and asks if I come out here for youth rally. He says, that, 
that sounds like, that, that'd be kind of fun to do that. I'd love to do that. I love young people, and so let's do that. And then before I come, I'm going to have a couple sleepless nights and say, why in the world did I ever say I'm going to do that? And then when I get home, I'm going to say, that was really good. I should do that again. And that's, that's the way it is. And Merle said, there should always be something akin to terror in ministry. It's never like, oh, I can't wait to go do this. And you're like, I'm in bed laying there one night and my heart was starting to race and I was thinking about this stuff. And I was like, you know, Merle said, you should, there should be something akin to terror in ministry. This, this is okay, okay? Like, God's got this. So this will be okay. Um, that's the way life is. And, and we, really, we really, really missed Bible school this year because ministry is where, ministry is, is where life is. When I came in here last night and started filling these benches up, you know, first there was about 20, 30 of you, and I was like, well, that looks like our youth rally. We have one every spring. And then I kept going, and I'm preaching, oh, this is starting to look like Bible school. Um, that's exciting. That's exciting. Because that's where, that's where God wants us to be. That's what life is all about. It's not about going hunting. You know, if you watch YouTube videos about hunting, you'll like going hunting. You'll find that, I mean, I go hunting. I know what it's like. Someone says when, when, if you see a buck walk out and your heart doesn't start pumping and racing, you might as well quit. You know, I mean, life's over. Um, and I understand that. I understand when I'm out hunting and all of a sudden you see something, oh, oh, it's just a squirrel, you know. Uh, I get that. But this is more important than that. I don't know, if, uh, there was a book out many years ago called The Peace Child. Now, how many of you have ever read that book? Uh, Don Richardson was, him and his wife were called to uh, Papua New Guinea, I think it was. And they were, they were called to a tribe of headhunters um, where they like to eat you. And not only did they like to eat you, the, the best thing you could do, the greatest thing you could do, was to fatten up your enemy and make him think he's your friend, and then you eat him. Okay, You don't just sneak up behind him and kill him, but you convince him he's your friend. And you have him over, and he's scared to death because he's wondering what's going on, and then you have him over, and pretty soon he gets pretty comfortable, and he's sitting there around your fire one night, and he's visiting and drinking tea, and then he looks around and realizes that He's surrounded by naked headhunters with spears, and they're all looking at him, and he gets this look of terror in his eye. Oh, that was the best part, that terror. <laughs> Did you see him before we killed him? Oh, they, oh we tricked him, didn't we? That was, like, that was the, go- the best thing you could do in that culture. And Don and his wife went in there to tell him about Jesus Christ. Uh, when do you stop being worried that they're just fattening you up to eat you? Are you going to survive? I don't know. Um, so he told him about Jesus Christ. And he started in the beginning, started Genesis and the, the creation and the fall of man, and Jesus came to redeem the world, and he got up there and he said, and Jesus was in the garden, and Judas betrayed him. And when he said Judas betrayed him, <laughs> he got him good that time. His best friend got him. Man, he thought he was his friend, and he wasn't his friend after all. And they just thought Judas was the hero. <laughs> Don's like, well, now what do we do? Like, how, 
how do we, what do we do with this? I mean, like, how, what, what do you do then? Well, after he was in the culture for a while, he discovered that there was only one way to make peace. And the way you made peace was if you had two warring tribes and you would, you would exchange babies. Okay, this one would have a baby, this one would have a baby, and you exchange babies. And as long as those babies were healthy and living, so I'm not going to attack this tribe over here if they have my, my child, right? And so you would, they would exchange babies, and they would protect those babies because that was what their peace hung on. If that child died, look out. They're coming to get you now because you didn't take care of their child. And he learned this, and then the light came on, and Don said, went back and told the story again, he said, God sent his son to redeem the world, and Jesus was the peace child, and Judas murdered the peace child. And then they got mad at Judas. Then they got it. And he was there for a number of years, and that tribe ended up with a huge conference center. It was, one, it was like a world, it was an engineering feat, their building that they built. Um, Thousands of these people came to the Lord because Don and his wife went in and ministered to them. Here's a quote. When Don and Carol left for Papua New Guinea, they had no idea that the people that were waiting for Tuan, a white person, to come to their tribe. They didn't know if the people would welcome them or kill them. They didn't know how to find a way to help the people understand God's love. But they didn't have to know those things. God simply asked them to be obedient. And that's what God's asking us to do. And it might be terrifying. And we don't know if we'll survive. <laughs> I mean, I've never done anything that's really life-threatening. But there are some people, they go into places and they don't survive. I mentioned Bible school is terrorizing for me. About three, four years ago, I got to Bible school and they said, oh, everybody's here except for one guy coming from Manitoba and... Uh, and he won't get here to Sunday night. And I said, oh, okay. I said, so what church is he from? Well, they, they didn't know what church he was from up there. Um, there was, he, he was part of some, some group, and there was some child abuse or something. I said, oh, he's, he's from one of those. Yeah, they said he's one of those. David got to Bible school, and he did great. Uh, we don't know how he got a Maranatha. Like, he didn't go to a, a plain church. Um, he knew some people from a church associated with Midwest. We don't know how he got an application or whatever, how, who signed what, but he got there. And after a couple, he did just great. He fit right in. He was, he was a, a great student, very knowledgeable. Um, yeah, he, he was just 19, just a very, very fine young man. Towards the end of the term, I, he was sitting across from us one time at lunchtime. I said, David, I said, so I understand you were part of this group where the children were taken away. So here's the story. This is the story we heard. Social services came in and removed all the children from a church. Cleaned all the children out. And accused them all of abuse, of course. And he was one of these children. So, like, is, was, it, was it serious? Like, did this really happen? And David started telling this story. And as near as I could figure out, the preacher came and accused him and his mother of having an improper relationship. But the preacher accused everyone of everything, 
And so the preacher took all the children to his house, and all the girls stayed in the house with the preacher. And you can imagine what happened. And all the guys were out here. And if they didn't do what they were supposed to do, they were beaten. If they didn't want to do, do what they were supposed to do, they took cattle prods to them. And they would take them, and David was 12 years old, they would tie him to the bed, <clears throat> and he'd have to stand beside the bed while whoever it was, you know, his, whoever was one of the men there would be sleeping, and he'd have to stand there all night. And if he untied himself and went to the bathroom, they'd see that and they would beat him. And if he, and he said, we were just, we were just nervous. I mean, it was a nervous wreck and we couldn't eat and we'd try to eat and we'd throw up. If we'd throw up, they'd beat us. So then we would eat our vomit so that they wouldn't see that we had thrown up. And this is an Anabaptist church, supposedly. Then he's taken away and, and some of them were running away and the police were chasing him. And it, it sounded like a Hollywood story. And he, he got away and he, he escaped, but then the police were trying to find him because he was just a minor. And, but they had, been, they had told him, now look out, you're going to be persecuted. So he didn't want to turn himself into the police. He said, so if we would have cooperated with the police, things would have went a whole lot easier. Said, but we wouldn't talk because we were sure this was... So he, he ends up, he's in a foster home. And he's going to come to Bible school. But there's no room at Bible school. He told God if he could go, he would like to go to Bible school. But if God opened the door, he would go. If not, that was fine. Friday night, Bible school starts Sunday. Friday night, he gets called and says, there's an opening at Bible school for you. Um, actually, one of the young guys in our church community was supposed to go, and he nah, it was too short a notice. So he didn't go. And I said, I'm glad you didn't go, Austin, because David needed to come. So Friday night, he finds out. It's Friday night. He doesn't have anywhere to go get cash out of an ATM because, or out from a bank because it's, it's Friday night. And so he, he's trying to get his stuff together, and he has some Canadian cash, but, and it was dark and dreary, rainy. It was just miserable, and that's the way he felt inside. He didn't know a soul. He's scared to death. But he said, you know what? He said, if God, I told God, if he would make a way for me to go to Bible school, I would go. And so I'm going. And he got to the first gas station. His debit card didn't work. And he just wanted to turn around so bad and go home. And he tells the story. And then uh, Howard Bean asked him if he would share his testimony at the banquet at the end of term. And he got to the end, he got to the end of his testimony. He said, and when he learned to forgive, it was so great. I mean, he just, oh, he was just, it was so freeing to forgive. And he said, thank you for the best three weeks of my life. And you know what? I had nothing to do with that story, but I got to be there and I got to see it. And David's, whenever I see David, I'm just always happy. I see him occasionally. And you know what? He's now joined the church there at Nipawa, which would associate with us, as well as his foster family. They, they've all come over there now. And the Lord's doing a work in his life, and I believe he's dating the last, the last I heard. And you know, I had absolutely nothing to do with that. But I got to be there, and I got to see it. And that is exciting. And that's what happens when we serve the Lord. God didn't call us just to sit in the lodge all day and see these things go by. Ministry may be the hardest thing you ever do, but you'll grow from it.
and you'll get over the terror, and you realize, that's good, and I would like to do that. We're on the winning team. Pablo Yoder, how many of you read Pablo Yoder's books, Angel Over, Over Waslala? He was saying, for a while there, they could correlate, they had been robbed 20 times, they had 20 converts in their church. They'd been robbed 30 times, they had 30 converts in their church. What are you willing to put up with so that a soul knows about Jesus Christ? Is it, is it worth it, that terror? You know, his wife was actually abused by the, by the robbers. You know, and you can... Serving, serving, I'll, I'll tell you one more story yet. We went to a Grenada this year to see my daughter. And uh, this wasn't in my notes, but I see I got a little time yet. If, unless, unless you're opposed. But uh, I went down to see my daughter, and next was all scheduled. I was supposed to go speak. And well, then COVID came along, and we couldn't go. So, okay, well, we won't go. Well, maybe we could. Well, then they implemented testing 72 hours for leave. Okay, we can't do that. Well, I keep looking. Well, if we go drive to Duluth three hours away, we could get tested there. And that would, that would work. Well, okay. Um, and my daughter said, don't even try to come. She said, this, this is it. She said, it's, it's too much money. You know, I mean, tickets were $4,500. Um, she said, it's too much money and too risky. Like, you don't even know if you do it. So don't, don't even try. And I said, well, the tickets are refundable within 50 bucks. I said, and we won't know unless we try. Let's, let's, let's try. And, uh, well, okay, she said. So our little girl said, are we going to Grenada? We said, well, we don't know. Um, we'll have to find out. And so we went down and we got tested on Saturday. And I walked in there and my heart kind of sunk. I was looking for, like, you know, medical people. And it looked like a bunch of garbage handlers, really. They all had on their bright vests, you know, and they go around and wheeling garbage cans around and doing this and that. No one there looked really official. And... Um, and it was a saliva-based test. And so you didn't have the, have the thing stuck up your nose. You just had to spit in this little tube, you know? And uh, we said, okay, good. This will be easier for the girls. And, but we get in there, and the guy's like, well, you need an email address. I said, well, here's my email address. No, he said, you need one for everybody. I said, well, hello. Like, my girls don't have email addresses. Well, he says, otherwise, we'll just call you with the results and say if negative or positive. And if you're not there, you don't get the result. I said, no, I, said, I need to have a form with this on. Well, you can try this here, and that might, oh. What? Uh, I was really discouraged. So we go back to take our test and sit there and spit in our little tube. And uh, my son says, "We drove three hours to spit today." And, and you know what? It's it. We got that all done except for Kendra has diabetes, and diabetics can have a dry mouth. And we all got done, and she had a few little bubbles in her in her deal. And I said, we're done. And so Martha gets out the phone and starts finding some videos or something for her to watch. And Kendra sits there and keeps scraping the top of her lip with the deal. And I, I was like, the trip's over. I mean, we're, we can't go without a test. I'm sitting against the wall with my eyes closed. And Kira says, I thought you were sleeping. I said, I wasn't sleeping. I was praying. An hour and 15 minutes later, we finally get enough saliva for a test. But now we've got to find out if the tests are negative. 
And we don't know if it's in an acceptable form that'll be a, a document. So Sunday morning in church, I told everybody, I said, we ain't going. This ain't going to happen. That was the dumbest looking test I ever saw. I'm, we're, we're done. Sunday afternoon, about 5 o'clock, we got an email saying your first test results are in. And we get that, and I go to the computer and type it up. This is, a good, this is like a valid paper. Praise the Lord. So we're checking emails, checking emails, checking emails. Yep, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> mine didn't come in. Uh, we leave Monday noon. Monday morning, 8 o'clock, mine came in. Oh, praise the Lord. We got that. Uh, so we left Monday noon to go to Minneapolis to get on the flight. But we also had to get a form with the country of Grenada to let us in the country. And you had to have it before you get on the flight. So I had filled it out the week before. And it took me hours to fill all these forms out. Duplicates over. It, they, they, bureaucracy is crazy. No forms. No emails. Nothing. So we're in Minneapolis in the airport. We fly out the next morning. I call my daughter in Grenada. I says, we don't have any results yet. She says, well, she says, you try again in the morning. You call them. If not, I'll try it from down here, and we'll try to shake something loose. So I get up 6 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in Grenada time, call the Ministry of Health, says, hey, I have this hoping to come down there. Would it be possible, uh, really nice, would it be possible in the next couple hours I could get my test results? Oh, she was, I could do that in a couple minutes. My computer goes ding, 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 ding. Six results came in. Oh, praise the Lord. My son says, oh, we didn't need them till the day. What was the big deal? I mean, you know. It was... So we get on the plane. We get in Minneapolis, get to the airport. Everything's good to go. Get to Miami, stay overnight, get to the airport the next morning, and we get in this long line, and, and, uh, there's these people checking out your tests and your paperwork. And they're like, nope, this is the wrong test. You can't go. This guy over here, this guy over here. Here's this guy here. He can't speak English. And he gives his paperwork. So it's the wrong test. And he's like, huh, I couldn't understand. So he gives him his phone. Call son. So he calls his son. No, you have the wrong. Please email him the correct forms. Well, his flight leaves in two hours. Well, well, this is happening all around us. And they pass this all through. It's like, oh, praise the Lord. Another one down. Are we going to Grenada? We don't know yet. <laughs> We're not on the plane yet. We'll find out. So we, we get to the, to the ticket agent, and he gets all the paperwork out, and where are you going to see our daughter, blah, 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 and he starts going through all the tests and the paperwork, and then he gets to the test, and he starts counting days. It has to be three days from the time you test to you fly. And he's going, fourth finger starts going, oh, no. Because it's three days from the time you get to Grenada, not three days from the time you fly from Minneapolis. And he could turn us around right there. Uh, well, I don't say anything. He doesn't say anything. I don't say anything. He doesn't say anything. I just let him do his work, you know. And I said, just a minute, I'll be back. He goes over to talk to someone else. I turned to the family. I said, keep praying. He's counting our days, and we're, we're something's in trouble here. He comes back. Oh, you could tell he really wanted to, but he didn't think he should. And, you know, you know. And finally, he starts printing boarding passes. Puts a check mark on it. Then he gets another color and puts another check mark on it. He gives me my test back. I said, I need my test results. No, he said, you take those and bury them in the bottom of your bag. He said, I put these check marks on here, which means it's all been checked. No one will see those papers again. And uh, I said, well, thank you very much, sir. I said, you don't know. I said, this trip is a miracle that everything's working out. He said, you don't know how big of a miracle this is. He said, we turn people aside every day. He said, and your tests were three, four, well, I, you know, thank you, sir. <laughs> thank you, sir. 
we got on the plane, text my daughter, we're coming. We're actually coming. She's like, oh good, now I'll get excited. We get to Grenada, they lock it down. Found a bunch of COVID cases. We can't have church, or at least it's, and my daughter's like, what are we going to do if we can't have church? Like, you came here for church? I said, you know what, I don't know what we're going to do, but I know God got us here. And we had church. And the night after we got done with church, they put in a curfew and no more evening meetings. You know what? That was so exciting for our family. Like my children, my little children got to see prayers answered, like in real time. I mean, this wasn't, these were like miracles. We call them what you want, but I'm going to call them a miracle. And they got to see that. And I mean, we're, just, we're just pumped. Because we got to see God working. So can God do these things? Absolutely. So I'm coming out here right. Oh, what if, you know, my brother-in-law got COVID last week. My wife's like, well, were we exposed? No, I said we weren't exposed. Um, well, what about this? You know, and then, well, well, you know what? If God wants me to come out here, he'll get me out here, okay? And if he doesn't, then that's going to be okay. My daughter's trying to get home for my son's wedding. And she's us all worked up. And I said, remember, Ministry is akin to terror. And she's like, talking about my trip out here, she's like, you feeling the terror? I said, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, we read this last night. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, the terror, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Imagine when Jesus got home to heaven. He walked in the door, he said, Father, I'm home! And we did it! I made it! See, he was human, he didn't, have to, he didn't have to succeed. Sure, he was all God, but he could have failed. Father, I made it, we did it. And aren't we glad he did? Some of the hardest things that I have done have been some of the most rewarding things that our family has done. Adventure and terror and joy are synonymous with ministry. And I hope you get to experience them. The terror. I hope you get that. And the joy. And the adventure of serving the Lord. God bless you.